0: in South Africa. It's time for the long and
1: short of it with Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and Dale Hayes.
2: Indeed, it is another episode of the long and the short of it. My name's
1: Simon Hill. In isolation is Dylan Rogers. Hi, Dale. Yes, indeed. Uh, hi, Sy. Si. Greetings to you and to Dale, and looking forward to today's uh, important guest. And Dale, you know Bernard from way, way back. Tell us a little bit about your history.
0: Well, I first met Bernard in the middle 70s when he came out onto the European tour. You know, I played, I played until 1980. And uh, so I played for five years. I probably played a little bit with Bernard on and off. And, uh, you yeah, know, we got to know each other quite well. And then we did a trip to, to Colombia, to Bogota, and uh, to play in a tournament. And we played backgammon, I think, for must have been 20 hours on the aeroplane. And uh, so we really got, we got uh, quite friendly. But Bernard is a terrific man. He really is a superb human being and uh, a wonderful golfer. Two Masters tournaments, 11 senior majors, 42 wins on the European Tour, that's second of all time. 41 wins on the Senior Tour, second all time. And that's in a total of 117 wins as a professional golfer. He's also won nearly 32 million United States dollars in prize money, and that's just on the Champions Tour. So we're talking about a man who's not only a wonderful person, but a great golfer. And he's going to challenge Gary Player and Sam Snead as the best old person golfer.
2: Dale set it up beautifully. We say no more. Here's our chat with the legend that is Bernard Langer.
0: Bernard, next year you'll have been a professional golfer for 50 years. I mean, I'm sure that it's pretty amazing. I don't know whether you really thought about it, but you turned professional at a young age, at 15 years of age. How did that come about?
3: Well, it's very simple. I did uh, basic schooling of nine years, and uh, I wasn't a big fan of school. <laughs> I enjoyed going to the golf course in the afternoon. And uh, so when I was 15, I finished schooling, and I had to earn a, a living doing something, and I watched the local pro giving lessons and teaching people and running the pro shop. And I thought, well, that could be a cool job. So I um, told my parents I'd like to become a, a golf professional, a teacher, you know, assistant pro at a club, giving lessons, fixing clubs, whatever, uh, running the pro shop, that kind of thing. And uh, they thought, well, let's just go to the Institute of Job Placement and see what they say, you know, just to confirm whatever so we went there and the guy says well young man what do you want to do with your life and i say oh i want to be a golf profession he goes what <laughs> <laughs> Golf profession. so he says well give me a couple minutes he left the room came back and he couldn't find anything no documents he said it's not a recognized profession in germany and he would kind of highly recommend to learn something decent <laughs> and, and, and here I am, 15 years old, not even 15, with my parents, and they both look at each other and go, well, maybe this is a bad idea. Maybe you should learn something else and then later become a you know, teaching pro or something. But uh, I was stubborn at the time, I guess. This is really what I wanted to do. And uh, got a, a job offer at Munich Country Club, went for an interview. They really liked the head pro who, kind of big, was in charge of me and and that's how it went so i moved to munich rented a one room in a in a farmhouse uh commuted by bicycle because i did not have a driver's license at the time you weren't allowed to get one till you were 18. so uh lived a simple life from 8 a.m in the morning till 9 p.m on the golf course every day
0: <laughs> but you, you mentioned that, that you didn't have a driver's license Dennis Hutchinson would say that they should never have given you a driver's license.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I I know that's what Dennis thinks uh, about my driving, but he's just really (laughs) scared. I don't know if he's too old or whatever, but uh, (laughs) he's not used to driving on the autobahns. And he was getting white knuckles when when we were going around the corners or going a little faster
0: than what he was used to. (laughs) (laughs) But in those days... Did you ever consider that you'd actually be playing in golf tournaments when you were 15 years old? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that never entered your mind.
3: No, it, it really didn't. I, you know, went into the trade of uh, the golfing trade, uh, becoming a teaching pro, giving lessons, helping people to become better golfers and uh, hopefully make a living that way. That was the whole idea. And, and I enjoyed it, uh, even though it's hard work, you know, being on the driving range for eight hours and telling some people how to swing the club and some are more gifted than others, as you know. Uh, but but it, w- it was fun at first. But then I started to become a, a decent player and actually won the National Clothes Championship at age 18 uh, when I met a businessman in Cologne who said, if I ever want to go on tour, he would try and help me financially. I said, oh, that'd be fantastic. And then the guy who was in charge of me, my head pro, Heinz Fering, asked me when I was around 16, you know, do you have any plans on being a, a touring pro playing tournaments or, or you want to continue teaching? I said, well, I really don't know. A touring pro sounds pretty good, but I don't know if I'm good enough. I had no one to compare myself. There was no other German on tour. So he said, well, you know, if you want to become a touring pro, I'm going to help you a little bit. I give you more time to practice and I'll give you a couple of lessons and and see if you can pursue that dream. So that was very helpful. And obviously, when I turned 18, I finished my three and a half years, uh, uh, got my diploma as a teaching pro, and that's when I joined the European Tour in 1976. Drove all the way to Portugal for the Portuguese Open, about 2,000 miles, and was really excited to you know, try and make a living playing golf instead of teaching
0: golf. Wouldn't you like to go back now and meet those couple of people and and uh, just say to them, guys, have a look, have a look at the Tournament Sub One, 117 of them, Hall of Fame, etc. And the list just goes on and on. Wouldn't you like to meet them and just say, guys, I think I did pretty good.
3: <laughs> well, you know, we don't know. None of us know the future. You know, I, I remember, I remember playing an exhibition match with Jack Nicholas at the Munich country club where i was assistant pro and i was invited to play with him which was mind-boggling because i was 16 years old i had never won anything or done anything and uh, the members could have invited anybody so they they invited two of the best amateurs in germany and myself a 16 year old and we were playing with jack nicholas the greatest guy you know in his prime 1973 and uh, I remember. Uh, I mean, I was shaking out of my knees. You know, I, I I shanked one, and then I made an eagle on the next, and I hit a lady on the shoulder, and I mean, all sorts <laughs> of stuff happened. I was I was really nervous. Anyways, Jeez. they they asked Jack after the round, you know, uh, in a press interview, media interview, and they said, "Well, what do you think about your playing partners?" And he he started with the amateur, and said, "Yeah, they this guy has great technique and a wonderful swing, and the other guy has tremendous talent and and, and that never said anything about me. And then some guys said, Well, what about the young pro? And Jack So he, he paused for a minute, he goes, Well, he's got a lot of heart. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so, yeah, <laughs> even Jack Nicholas wasn't too impressed, I guess, at the time. He just <laughs> saw that I had a, a lot of heart, or no, he didn't want to say anything bad. I don't know. <laughs> But,
2: ben, go, go back actually before all of that, because you're from a small village in Bavaria. And your older brother, Erwin, who kindly helped us set up this chat, wasn't he a caddy at, at a local course? And, and that's how you kind of got into it?
3: Exactly, Dale. That. Yeah, that's that's how it happened. Because he uh, we come from a poor family. We never had anything. I had to wear hand-me-downs from my older brother and, and all that. And so it was about... 13, 14, he started caddying and he came home with a few Dutch marks in his pocket whenever he got a job there. And, and I was five years younger than him and I'm going, wow, that's pretty cool. He's earning money and, and I want to earn some money. So when I was about nine, I begged him to take me along to the golf course so I could caddy and earn money too. And at first he said, no, you're too little, you're too young and all this and all that. And I just nagged and nagged and finally... I got my chance and I rode my bicycle with him up there. And as it happened, my first job was with the uh, club champion, the best player in the co- in the club. And and he fell in love with me right away and said, from now on, whenever I come and play, I'm gonna ask for you, you're gonna be my regular caddy. And, uh, you know, we had, a, we had a great time. And as you can imagine, it's more fun caddying for a scratch golfer than for a handicap 36. And so I, First, I fell in love earning money uh, through caddying and and golf. And then we were allowed as caddies to actually practice and play a little bit. And then then I got hooked on the game. And there were about eight caddies at the time. One, and we couldn't afford any golf clubs. So a member gave us some of the old clubs that he discarded. And it was a a two-wood, a three-iron, a seven-iron, and a putter with a bent shaft. So... That explains all my putting issues. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Can you remember what your first tip was? How much
3: you made? Well, we got $2.50. Uh, sorry, two Marks and 50 pfennigs for nine holes. It was a nine-hole course, which uh, is, used to be about $1 for nine holes, so $2 for 18 holes. And, you know, to make it worthwhile, I often pushed one trolley and pulled another trolley to make double pay. (laughs) And that turned out pretty good. And then I figured out if I don't lose any of the golf balls, they might give me a bigger tip because golf balls are expensive. So I, I figured out a technique where I could find golf balls, even in the longest hay and the thickest rough. I would pick out a point in the distance and walk a straight line to it where the ball disappeared, and then if I didn't find it the first time, I would backtrack on the left and then backtrack on the right, and I would usually find it. So my nickname became Eagle Eye Adlerauge, in German, <laughs> uh, when, when I was caddying because I hardly ever lost a golf ball.
1: Tell me, Bernard, have you had a chance to, 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 to relive that story with, with Jack Nicklaus at any stage and remind him of uh, your first encounter all those years ago?
3: Yeah, yeah, I think I brought that up somewhere in the, at the Masters, at the Champions Dinner, or wherever we hung out together. And uh, yeah, I got a good laugh
0: out of him. You know, when when you came out on tour, those those first couple of years, you actually struggled because you were struggling with your putting, even at that at that early age. Yeah, absolutely, I you know
3: I often wondered why, um, and I think there's several reasons. One was the pressure I felt financially because I didn't have any money, and I I knew if I don't make some prize money soon i'm gonna be going back so i put a lot of pressure on myself Uh, the, the other thing was probably i came from germany where the greens were running maybe eight on the stimp meter uh and i you know portugal and southern spain the greens are pretty quick 11 12 uh on tour i would think maybe faster and uh it Heck, they scared the daylight out of me. (laughs) And uh, I made a lot of street putts. And yeah, I developed the yips right away. I, I recall being very uncomfortable over short putts, you know, three, four, five footers. And then we had two cuts at the time. I don't know if you recall, but there was a Friday cut and a Saturday cut. And if you made the Saturday cut, you got a paycheck. And you got into the next week's tournament as well. So it was huge. But I remember... The third tournament I played was the Madrid Open, and uh, in, at Puerta de Hierro, I think it was the club, and I finished tight for fifth, even not putting great. And, and at that time, I said to myself, "Hey, you, you belong here. If you can, you know, finish fifth and make that kind of paycheck with a mediocre short game." You need to work on your short game. Your ball striking is pretty good, but work on your short game and you could be one of the better players on this tour. Uh, that That's what I took away, uh, even though going through uh, difficult times with the yips and all that, I, I knew if I could just overcome them, I i could be really good and, and make a great living out of this.
2: So you moved to the long putter, all right, and now recently, tell us what happened. You broke the flipping thing.
3: No, I didn't break the flipping thing. My caddy broke. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I have a professional caddy usually, but uh, he needed a week off for family issues. So I hired this friend of mine. Um, I'm not even going to mention his name right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, we play in the Pro-Am on Thursday afternoon. I have a late tea time. And in on the Champions Tour in the Pro-Am, you can, the caddy can drive the cart. So I said, you can drive the cart with the clubs and I'll just walk, save him carrying the, the heavy bag. Anyways, make a long story short, he takes the cart and he couldn't find the entrance. So he lifts up the rope, puts the rope on top of the cart, drives off. Well, the rope comes down at the end of the cart, snacks on the golf clubs, and he keeps driving. And now... The rope stretches, stretches, and you know, pulled one of my clubs out of the golf bag after he's driven off for 20 yards or so. And I was watching this from about 120 yards away. And I, I, I knew what was gonna happen. And I was screaming inside. <laughs> uh, and I thought, well, here goes my driver. I figured, well, my driver's gonna be bent, you know, to pieces. So he he picks up the club that flew out of the bag, puts it in, drives up to me and uh my first move was um pulling out the driver and i go oh man thank goodness my driver's still in one piece so i i then had to hit my second shot on the green 7 iron or whatever hit it on the green i pulled my putter out and my putter was bent about 48 degrees as 55 i don't know it looked like a hockey stick No, that not a putter and um go on here we go so what i do now so, you know, it was too late to repair the The repair truck had already left. I immediately called them, said, where are you? Go, oh, we're 90 miles away. I go, well, that's no good. And then nobody has this uh, ski pole double bend shaft. So make a long story short, I ended up putting with uh, Scott McCarran's spare putter for a day the first round. And it was actually 600 after eight holes, but it wasn't down to putting. <laughs> 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 and then uh, Callaway shipped me uh, another putter overnight uh, that basically came for the second round.
1: Obviously, one of the topical points and and in, in hot topics in, in golf is the distance debate, and um, you know, no no more visual than us being able to to compare performances at a place like the Masters and 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 you playing with Bryson DeChambeau, where I think, you know, a lot of followers of the game, certainly media and fans, enjoyed the fact that perhaps it was shown that, you know, the answer to golf is not necessarily being able to bomb and gouge it. Um, first of all, I just want to get your your thoughts on on playing with Bryson DeChambeau, who's obviously set the standard for, for long hitting on the, on the tour as it stands. And then perhaps to, to wade a bit more deeper into the distance debate. Your, your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, my thoughts. Are, first of all, I really like Bryson and my hats off to what he has done. You know, when he first came on the scene, I, I wasn't sure he was going to make it. It was very unorthodox, very different, very unusual, uh, you know, to have a pitching wedge as long as a sandwich, as long as a six iron. It didn't seem like that was going to work, but he made it work. And uh, he took it to a new level, this whole distance thing. And it's going to work for some courses. It's not going to work for other courses. Uh, I was... Asked two weeks ago, you know, who's your favorite for the Open Championship uh, two weeks ago? And I said, well, it's not Bryson DeChambeau. They go, well, why not? I go, it's not straight enough. He's, he's very, very long, but he's not straight enough. And out of that rough, you can't recover. And out of those pot bunkers, you cannot recover. And it proved right, you know. Uh, he, he did okay, but he didn't do very well. But it will work for a lot of courses. And uh, distance is really extremely important nowadays. And all these young guys hit it pretty far. To the debate about, you know, reducing the golf ball or other things, well, it's a double-edged sword in my mind. Uh, Distance is uh, one of the things why people play golf and one of the things why people watch golf. Because why has John Daly been so popular? And why is Bryson so popular? Because they were the longest hitters at their time and people love to see that ball go well it used to go 300 odd yards now it goes almost 400 yards so it's fascinating for people to see and and it's it's one of those positive things for the game of golf uh yet the other edge of the sword is that some of the courses are too short um you know people have to when they design courses now you have to get an extra 1,000 or 2,000 yards of land because you're not, not building on uh, 6,500 yards of a golf course. You're building a 7,500-yard golf course, and you need to water that land. You need to take care of that land, so it costs money. It's expensive. Uh, so all these things, you know, you know about them. The RNA, the USGA know about them. Well, they haven't done anything really for 25, 30 years about the equipment or or they've done a little bit. They took the square grooves away. They uh, banned the anchoring of the long putter. You know, all of that's not going to help the distance issue. Uh, So I'm not sure what they're going to do and if they missed the boat or what they could do. One of the things I think could be an option is make a larger golf ball. Uh, When you make a larger golf ball, you push more air. It won't go as far could increase the hole a little bit too to accommodate the larger golf ball that wouldn't be very expensive that could be one way to to bring it back you know 10 20 percent or whatever it may be
2: are you in favor of so the think- set of of rules for amateurs and and for professionals
3: well i you know the professionals have always tried to play the same rules um for the most part just to simplify the whole thing so when the amateurs watch uh on tv or uh, we play by the same rules so it's not even more confusing but you know there, there could become a time when the pgas or the tours decide to do something different we'll we'll wait and see
1: was there a certain set of satisfaction there bernard though the, i mean the irony of being paired with bryson de at the masters and and you being able to plot your way around Augusta. and and shoot a better score uh, compared with someone who's obviously a proponent of big hitting and the bombing and gouging kind of philosophy do you believe that kind of that was in support of preserving the 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 integrity of golf or perhaps that there's another way to to achieve good results on the course
3: well yeah we know there's different ways of playing the game Uh, the game is not just hitting it far the game is the score at the end of the hole or the round And there's a lot more to golf than just hitting it far. But, uh, you know, clearly he didn't have a very good day. That day he played with me and I had a decent day. Uh, So, you know, I know I basically, if we play 10 times at Augusta, he'll probably beat me eight out of 10 times, maybe nine out of 10 times, because he has such a, I mean, he hits it 80 yards past me and he can cut corners. And, you know, when he hits a pitching wedge into green and I'm hitting a two hybrid, well, who's going to win in the long run? It's very obvious. Uh, but, yeah, there's some courses where I think I can still be extremely competitive at, at my age, but it's uh, not necessarily Augusta because that is really a, a extremely long golf course with very small greens or small parts of pockets of greens where you have to stop the ball, and it's hard to stop a two-hybrid or a three-wood when other guys hit a nine iron.
0: Bernard, you know... You've got a reputation over the years of, of you know using uh, uh, the same golf clubs for for quite a long period of time. I haven't looked in your bag recently, so I'm not sure what you what you're using at the, at the moment. But the last time I looked in your bag, you had you know your clubs were were relatively old. I mean, they've been used quite a lot. What do you, what do you feel about that? I mean, do you keep up and change your clubs and make sure that you're using the very latest technology, or do you just use clubs that you actually like and feel good and so you stick with it well you would be proud of me
3: i actually got some shiny clubs in my bag now they're not all rusty (laughs) (laughs) but but there was a time in in my career when i had uh, three specific clubs the three four and five iron Uh, they were never chrome so they looked old and rusty from day one and uh, i played them for almost 20 years so that's a long time for any golf club to be in the bag. And and I had a caddy a while ago, and he would have bets with, with the amateurs we would play with. And, the, you know, my three or four iron looked like they were 50 years old. They were rusty and, and just there was there was no chrome on them. But they were only two years old. <laughs> and, and he would go to the amateurs and say, hey, if you could, I'll bet you $100, you will not guess how old these clubs are. You want to even come within 15 years of how old these clubs are. So they all thought, well, they're to be really, really old. You know, he <laughs> won every bet. <laughs> but uh, to come back to your question, yes, I, I do believe in testing the latest equipment and I do it, you know, most of it. Obviously, if I'm under contract for a, a certain company, I'm not going to test every other company's clubs because I don't, want to waste that much time uh, but i i do enjoy trying the latest equipment and sometimes uh, i just stick with what i trust what i know works and uh, you know use use the best clubs for me and some of the times those were all the clubs believe it or not but it, it's maybe somebody playing a guitar or piano and they're used to what what they have and even though the new one could be better, but they're just so used to the old one that they, they wouldn't want to switch.
2: Bernard, I want to go back to 1986 when you became golf's first official number one. What was that like?
3: Well, it was a new way of uh, trying to figure out where we are because we, we were globalizing golf a little bit. You know, In the old days, it was very difficult for the European players to play in America. They, they invited one player for the Masters and maybe one for the US Open and through the i think world rankings all the tours came together and said yeah we recognize the world rankings we will take the top 50 to all the majors or whatever number it was and that it gave uh, other players besides the americans a chance to play in the biggest tournaments around the world and uh, yeah at the time when they started it in 1986 i was played really i played really well in 84 85 and 86, and I was yeah ranked number one for, I think, three weeks. The first three weeks they came out with a world ranking, and I stayed in the top three or top five for many, many years. Uh, but I think it was a good way to come up with, with a measurement of the talent and, and where everybody is and who gets exempt and who's not. And they obviously had to change it two or three times, fine-tune it, uh, over the years. But I, I think it's uh, it, it was progress. It was a good thing. And it gives people the chance when you're hot, when you're playing well, and, and you had a good stretch to move up in the world rankings and, you know, get into a US Open or get into a Open Championship or whatever it may be without having to go through two qualifiers.
2: And can you recall what it meant for For Germany at the time, because you didn't have a big name golfer and you kind of put golf on the map there?
3: Well, to be honest, they really didn't have much idea. I mean, golf was not big in Germany in the 80s. And, uh, you know, like when I won the the Masters in 85, uh, most people thought golf was the miniature golf, Putt Putt. And uh, when Boris Becker won Wimbledon in 85, two, three months after I won the Masters, his his win was far bigger in a sense than my win because people understood tennis, people didn't understand golf. But uh, it certainly helped. Golf became a little more acceptable and, and people know about it now. And we have about 700 courses in Germany and probably 800,000 golfers or thereabouts. So um, it's it's it certainly has grown from that point on, but it's still country of 85 million people we have uh probably what is that one percent play golf very little
1: uh also in those uh, those early days uh, bernard and around the same time you were part of a golden era of, of european golf i mean yourself sevi uh, sandy lyle nick felder ian Woosnam. it really was a time when european golf did have a golden era and went through a really powerful stage what was that like Playing and taking on some of those those big names of world golf head to head on the European Tour, and what did it mean for the tour?
3: Well, it was I think it was huge for the European Tour because we we didn't have many major tournament winners. I think Tony Jacklin might have been the only one that had won a major. Uh, he won the, the U.S. Open and the Open Championship in '71 or thereabouts. And then nobody else won majors till Savvy came along. And I think his first one was 79 or so or 80, if I recall correctly. So now what what they call the big five in Europe, you know, Buzz, de Faldo, Lyle, Woozie and myself, we were all born within 10 months of each other. And we all were at the peak of our career, the same 15 20 years whatever you want to call it let's say from the 80s through the mid 90s we all won majors we all won tournaments all over the world and we i think we inspired each other i vividly recall you know playing against sabby almost every week on the european tour and and i knew i had beaten him a number of times yet he was winning majors and i wasn't and i'm going well if if I can beat him here and he wins majors, why am I not winning majors? So it it it, it did two things to me. It didn't, uh, it made me believe that I can, and it made me work harder because I was playing against four other guys that were really really good on a weekly basis, on a daily basis. And if I wanted to to be successful, I had to beat. I had to learn to beat those four guys every once in a while. And and I think it worked that way for all five of us. We pushed each other, we inspired each other. And then we were on the same team on the Ryder Cup, which was really fun and, and really huge for the Ryder Cup. And we finally started beating the Americans and started to dominate the Ryder Cup. And all that was very, very important for the European Tour.
1: Is there, is there a victory... Um... Taking on one of those those names that perhaps stands out for you, Bernard, and in terms of those the big five of European golf and a tournament that uh, at you were at your peak at and you were you know perhaps most satisfied in beating one of those rivals of yours. Well, you
3: know it went both ways, and there's there's a couple. I mean, I, I beat Sebi in a playoff at the Italian Open in Florence, and and uh, we had several playoffs. I think uh, rundowns. I had a playoff with Sebi again at the Lancome Trophy and we went uh, four holes and it got dark and uh, they said well you can either share the price or you come back tomorrow morning monday morning and we looked at each other and he had to go to tokyo or whatever and i had to go somewhere else to america or something so we said well let's just share the price and move on but you know those are special moments And, uh, and i think i lost the playoff at the irish open to him and so the there were Numerous tournaments where we were banging heads against each other, uh, you know, and and with the other three as well. So those five players I mentioned earlier, we were in the mix just most weeks and uh, dominated European golf for a number of years.
2: Well, just on that, you finished 1-2 with Seve at the Open in 84. And then I think you swapped places, obviously, in 85 when, when you won at the Masters.
3: Exactly. Yeah, I was, you know. I was in St. Andrews in July in 84, and he makes the winning putt uh, that famous, you know, when he throws his arm in the air and, and shakes the, the fist or whatever, that the happy smile he had, obviously winning at the home of Golf in St. Andrews, the Open Championship. That was in July 84, and then you go, uh, you know, nine months later or ten months later, and I, I was paired with him at the Masters in 85. Uh, on the last day, and he got to shake my hand and pat me on the back. So those were very nice memories.
0: Talking about those five players at the time, you know, you had uh, Sandy Lyle, who was a, a very natural player, beautiful long-iron player, and Ian Wiseman, who had that lovely golf swing. Feldo was very workmanlike. Sevy, you know, had all the imagination. I mean, you were all very different from each other. Who, who, were, who were you most scared of coming down the stretch? Who, who was the guy that you'd least like? to be to be up against coming down that stretch.
3: yeah that's a great question I, and i would probably say savvy um and and maybe sandy lyle even because sandy showed no nerves the guy was so gifted and talented he just you know when he was on he was on unreal and uh it's almost like he didn't care i sure he i'm sure he cared but it came over like you know <laughs> he, he could hit it a phenomenal distance and make putts and do everything but but Seve was, uh, you know, so intense. He was such a fighter. And, and uh, you know, even if you play him in match play and you think, well, he's out of the hole, he was never out of the hole. He could hold a bunker shot. He could chip in from 60 yards or whatever. I mean, you just... I remember uh, Tom Lehman sharing uh, this story with me. He was paired against Seve in the Ryder Cup and he never saw him for nine holes. Seve was left, Seve was right. <laughs> He, he, they just met on the green somewhere, and and down the middle on the green, you know, green and regulation, and they were they were even and square after nine holes, and Sebi was never on the very end, never never to be seen. But that's how he played golf at times.
0: Changing the subject completely and getting getting back to uh, or getting to South Africa, you you won the Nedbank Golf Challenge in 1981, but. You really supported the Sunshine Tour in difficult times. I mean, you know, those days, obviously, uh, there was a lot of pressure on, on international players coming to play golf in South Africa, but you always supported playing in South Africa, both on the Sunshine Tour and the Netband Golf Challenge. Why, why did you do that?
3: For two reasons. I enjoyed coming to South Africa and, and uh, enjoyed the, the beautiful country and the people. And, uh, you know, I had once people sent me threats um they, they would cut out letters of a newspaper and make it into a sentence and saying if you play south africa one more time we're gonna hurt you and your family or something like that you know and and they're obviously you know uh, anonymously or whatever they didn't want to be known i gave it to the police and they never found who it was but i i felt it was very wrong for to put us sportsmen in front and blame us to fix apartheid or whatever the issue was. You know, the politicians couldn't couldn't clean it up or couldn't fix it and then we were supposed to. And I looked at it in, in another way. When we played Sun City, let's say the prize money was $2 million uh, at some point, overall, the overall prize money. Well, Bobo Totswana got 50% of taxes. So they got $1 million US dollars to the government of Papa Tetswana, which is probably more money than you know, they got from anywhere else. So us, us going to play there really helped the community there and not hurt them. That's how I saw it. But uh, I was always a global player Player, Dale. I played in Australia and Japan and Africa and just about everywhere. The only place I haven't been is Antarctica, and I don't think I'm going to go there. But uh, anyways... But, that's how I looked at myself and,
0: and um, really enjoyed my visits down there. You know, you've, you've done so much. Your career has been absolutely phenomenal. Winning the Masters, uh, nearly winning the Open Championship a couple of times, Hall of Fame, um, the, the German Sports Hall of Fame. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. Uh, more recently, the Payne Stewart Award, which, are, which is a massive award to get. Of all these things, which which is the one that makes you feel the most proud? Well, that's
3: that's a tough one to answer because I I, I feel like they were all important at the certain time. You know, winning my Caddy tournament the first time was important, or or winning the uh, first German Open was big. And you would say, well, how can a winning a German Open be big, or even the German National Open? And then, you know. One tournament most people don't even know about the World Under 25 uh, Casual. Casual World Open under 25 years of age. I won that by 17 strokes, and to me, at age you know 22 or whatever I was, was huge because it, it I started putting well and it gave me the confidence. Well, if I can beat these guys by 17, I should be winning other tournaments, and and it just was a huge stepping stone obviously you look back and you think well the the masters wins had to be the biggest and they probably were but you know my four wins at the father son with my kids are just as meaningful to me as some of the biggest wins i might have had on tour because it's such a unique event and and so cool to be with your kids playing in front of live tv inside the ropes and all that or you know representing your country in the world cup or the Ryder cup those are such amazing events where you create friendships and and it, it's such a different game in a sense uh, than a regular tournament when you play team events. I truly enjoyed that and and I love that so they're very meaningful
0: to me talking about the the World Cup you won the world Cup in uh, for Germany with Marcel C and I don't know did you watch the open championship and did you watch uh, Marcel scene play wasn't that lovely? I,
3: yeah, I watched a lot of it and actually. Uh, we were talking on the phone a couple of weeks earlier and he said he was struggling and he's not exempt. And uh, actually he was down in South Africa. He was. Maybe it was three months before yeah. that. And uh, I was trying to help him to maybe get a sponsor invite in America. And it, it didn't pan out easily with COVID and all that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm thrilled for him, uh, you know, to be working and fighting his way back. And he's had two or three really good weeks in a row and, it was exciting to watch him on TV doing so well at a major championship.
0: The other thing I wanted to ask you is you've won tournaments by so many shots a number of times. You mentioned Cascherel, you won by 17 shots. I think um, you shot by 265 and the other guy shot like 290 something. Uh, but you won the German Open by seven shots. You won the Irish Open by 10 shots. You won the uh, first and third of your senior victories were both by eight shots. Why, why, do you, why are you able to do that? I mean, a lot of players get a lot ahead and then they kind of let things slip a little bit, you know, and, and end up only winning by a few shots. But uh, obviously, obviously, you just like keep going.
3: Well, I, I both happened to me. I've, you know, I've had to when I had a, a good lead and then it, it dwindled and became very tight <laughs> and may have even lost one or two of those. And I've had tournaments when I just felt so much in control of my game Uh, that I just pushed further and further ahead. Um, One of those stood out to me, winning the uh, senior open at Raul Poors Call a few years back. I think I won it by 13 shots. And and Montgomery finished second, and and he said, well, I should be the winner. If Langer hadn't been here, I would have beaten everybody else by four or something like that. So (laughs) I, I don't know why. I guess you just get into a into the zone, into a comfort where you just hit a lot of quality shots and and make some putts. And then maybe if you have a sizable lead, the pressure becomes even less and you are probably playing even better. Um, I really can't explain it. Um, sometimes I play so poorly that I wonder, you know, when you play poorly, you don't know why you play poorly. And when you're well, you don't know why you're playing well. It's just a crazy game.
2: Bernard, you played in multiple Ryder Cups, 10 of them. It's a Ryder Cup year. It's at Whistling Straits. And Dell, I saw you put out something earlier this week saying that you think Whistling Straits suits the Europeans. How do you see it going, Bernard? Yeah,
3: I think it's a very good golf course. It's a great golf course for match play as well. There's a lot of exciting holes where stuff can happen. Uh, I believe both teams uh, have played numerous tournaments there, whether it was majors or other events. And I'm not sure it favors anybody. So I I could see that being a great venue and and a pretty tight uh, competition right now. I think we the Europeans have a good team and the Americans have a great team. So I I see coming down you know to a, to a pretty tight match, and I'm not sure who's favored. Obviously, I'm pulling for the Europeans, but we'll have to wait and see. Also. Like the two captains, I think uh, Patrick Harrington uh, is going to be a great captain. And so will Steve Stricker. So um, it, it's going to be an exciting match to watch.
2: Now, every captain brings something different to the party. What kind of a captain were you? Well, I, I never
3: really had been captain of much before. <laughs> so uh, I, I always say it was strange to be at a golf tournament for a whole week. And never hit a golf ball, never swing a club, and just watching, <laughs> watching others play. It's like a fish out of water. But I, I, th- I felt I prepared very well. I was playing under four different captains in the 10 years I played in the Ryder Cup as a player. And I watched those four captains and what I felt they did well or what maybe they didn't do as good as they could have and so i try to integrate certain things of what i learned from them and then i talked to uh franz beckenbauer who's one of the most famous soccer players in germany he was a great player but then he became a coach he became the national coach and uh you know i asked him how how did you put you know 15 prima donnas or 20 that usually all think they're the greatest and and they don't necessarily like each other because they play against each other and now you gotta they gotta play for one team and pull for each other how do you do that it's similar in golf i mean let's face it we play against each other every week and then once in two years we're supposed to be a team and play for each other Uh, not necessarily easy the other tricky thing is you have on the Ryder Cup, you have 12 players. You only play eight on Friday morning and afternoon and Saturday morning and afternoon. So four guys are sitting out. So you're basically telling these guys, these four guys, every morning and afternoon, whoever that is, hey, you're one of the greatest players in the world, but you're not good enough to play this morning. And, <laughs> you know, they're not, but, uh, they don't like sitting on the bench and watching they want to they want to be in the mix of it so you have to keep them happy you have to instill confidence and let them know i value you i know you're a great player i just don't want to play you this morning i want to rest you or whatever for this afternoon or i need you tomorrow morning so be ready then don't you know don't get mad at me for not playing you this morning and you you have to communicate those things to them because some of them might think well doesn't like me or he prefers this guy or that guy and that doesn't work very well in in a team room and i I think i handled that fairly well i was very open with communication talked to everyone one-to-one had a great uh team of vice captains around me uh we also prayed a lot and um you know all, all of that combined ended up in a uh, the biggest winning margin of a uh, european team on foreign soil Um actually you probably won't recall but we won all five segments of we won the foursomes four balls foursomes four balls and the singles uh in detroit on on foreign soil at a hostile basically environment and that's not easy to do so it was quite an amazing week do you
1: Sure. those me? conversations uh, bernard do- do you recall being the most difficult when you had to leave a player out? Is there one that comes to mind where you had to break the news to a player to say, "Listen, you are playing well, or you're a fantastic player, but I'm sorry, there's no there's no spot for you today."
3: Well, no, that was that was not so much the issue um, at the tournament. Once our team was made of twelve players, I at the very beginning, I I instilled in them or tried to instill in them, "Hey, we're a team. We're here as a team." Some of you will have to sit out, just swallow the pride and, and, you know, be ready when it's your turn. Uh, We're here for one purpose, to win the Ryder Cup as a whole, not as individuals. And so, you know, one third of you will be not playing. And that's how it is on on any given morning or afternoon. And there will probably be every one of you at some point. Uh, The hardest thing for me was to decide who my two wild cards are because there were about four guys or five i would like to pick and i could only pick two and then i had to call two or three guys or visit them in person and say hey i'm very sorry you know you you had a great season you deserve to be there but you're not gonna be there i'm not gonna pick you Did and you
1: call who they who they were at the time
3: yeah one was checker and the, but there was one uh, uh, a Swedish player. I can't recall his name right now. I'm getting old, uh, and and he must have really felt he should be on the team because he was 11s in the point standing, 11s in the money list, and he played really consistently well. And and I I could take 12 players, so he must have thought, well, clearly he's going to pick me. And uh, I sent my my vice captain uh, was Anders Forsbrand. I sent him to. Uh, Oakland Hills Country Club in Detroit several weeks before and I said I want you to spend two days there just checking out the golf course look at uh, every hole you know what type of player do I need do I need a straight driver do I need a uh, somebody that's long or or short and precise or is the short game more important or whatever so Anders did a wonderful report he came back to me and when he told me that I didn't pick that Swedish player and I I picked Luke Donald and I picked uh, Colin Montgomery, who were not necessarily the obvious ones at the time. They were in in the mix, but I could have just as well taken others. And yeah, when I faced that uh, Swedish player, I can't remember his name now. uh, He turned white, white as a piece of paper. And uh, I really felt terrible for him because... I was in a similar situation when Mark James was captain and uh, I was just outside the team and I needed a, a captain's pick. Everybody thought, well, he's going to pick Langer. He's played nine Ryder Cups before and he's in decent form. And the media thought, so the caddies, even the players. And uh, Mark James, you know, came to me like five minutes before he announced it and said, I'm not going to pick you. I'm going to pick Coltart over you. I think he's a better this and a better that. And he never played him until the singles, which made no sense. So I I knew except, exactly the emotions the Swedish player felt when I told him I'm not going to pick him. And, and I felt really bad for him. But I had to put that aside. I had to get the best team out there that I felt the best and, and would perform well. And then, you know, it turned out that Monty and Luke Donald performed very well.
0: You mentioned... You know that that um, uh, you all prayed together uh, during that during the, that period. Religion's a, a major part of your life, Bernard. Uh, just just tell us how how did that start and and what it means to you and your family. Well, it, it means a
3: great deal, and I want to start off right now with uh, it's not religion. It's it's really believing in God, and it's a misconception amongst many millions and millions of people. I was actually brought up in a religious home. I was going through all the motions and doing all the right things, you know, um, going to church every day and this and that and and. But that's really not what I believe God wants us to have. God wants us to have a personal relationship with Him, and I didn't learn that till I was till I won the Masters the first time, and I was uh, totally empty. And I don't know if you can relate to that but i just won my first master's after missing out you know to savvy at st andrews and a couple other close calls and i was just married i had a beautiful young wife i was ranked number one in the world about six months later i actually won i think six or seven tournaments that year around the, the, the world i had money in the bank I owned houses and cars and and had everything gone for me, but I had an emptiness. So when I drove to Hilton Head the very next day on Monday, uh, played a practice round with Bobby Clampett, and Bobby Clampett, at the end of the practice round on Tuesday said, why don't you join us uh, for the Bible study tomorrow night? I'm going Bible study? What exactly is that? I mean, I knew or I could figure out what it would be, but I want to hear from him. He said, well, we have this uh, chaplain, Larry Moody, he, uh, you know, picks up the Bible and we, he teaches us either a topic out of the Bible or explains what a certain passage, how it relates to us now, almost 2,000 years later. And I said, well, sounds interesting, but I'm not sure I'm going to come. Let me ask Vicky, my wife. So I asked Vicky, we both decided to go, make a long story short. Larry Moody, the chaplain, talked about the passage in John 3, 3, where Nicodemus, a religious leader, comes to Jesus uh, at night because he didn't want to be seen visiting Jesus, I guess. And Jesus tells him, you have to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And, and Nicodemus goes, wow, that's what is born again. And then three two verses later in John 3, 5, Jesus says you have to be born of Water and spirit to enter the kingdom of God, which is heaven. And, and Nicodemus goes like, well, how can an old man be born again? I'm old. I'm, I'm going to die. I'm not going to be. And and obviously, Jesus referred to a spiritual birth. And that's exactly what
0: I needed. But Bernard, then don't you think, though, that the fact that you that you uh, bullied a person like me on the backgammon, when you played <laughs> backgammon, don't you, don't you think that, that, that that's going to look bad for you?
3: <laughs> well, it may, maybe that's considered a sin. I'm not sure. It's not, not a sin, Dale. <laughs> you
2: deserved it. The way he beat me was a sin.
3: <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still selfish. I, I told you I have a sinful nature. I
0: still have a selfish nature, So I want to win. Um, but, Bert, a, a serious question. You know, uh, I've known you for a very long time, okay, and I know what kind of person you are. And it you know that uh, when I read about President Trump and that, the story with the voting and everything like that, I really felt I felt so bad for you that must that must have uh, been very hurtful for you
3: it was uh, It was very weird how it came about, and it was really the media's fault, not not President Trump. Actually, President Trump called me once he got a wind of this a, a few days later, when it was in the media, he called me up personally and said, uh, I, I want to apologize to you because, uh, you know, I somebody gave me this information. It was bad information and it was all twisted and turned. And the Washington Post printed an article that was totally wrong. Uh, and, and it put me in a bad way of light, probably, because I would never stand in line to vote in America when I have a German passport and I'm a German citizen. I'm not stupid. Oh uh, so why waste too much time to just get told you can't vote? So the whole thing was made up just to make Trump look bad. Basically that's what it was. And uh yeah, that's all I can say to that. I'm I'm over with this. But you know the media is very powerful and they they wanna more than than not or more than they're not off they wanna put print bad stuff and not good stuff.
2: What's that like getting a phone call from the President of the United States? Do you get a heads up that he's going to call you or do you just pick up the phone and it's Donald Trump, how you doing Bernard?
3: No, it was actually, I I didn't get a heads up. It was just a number appearing and uh, I didn't recognize the number. So at first I wanted to hang up, but then I realized, well, who knows? So I did pick it up and I was shocked at first and uh, I was shocked that he would even take the time to apologize for something that wasn't really just his fault it was misinformation by several people and the media blew it out of proportion
2: every time someone does an interview they ask about your key and your secret to longevity and you've given a couple of explanations over the years but i like your most recent one which is sauerkraut and sausages is that the key to longevity
3: (laughs) well we all know it's not. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> I have a sense of humor. So they asked me that a week ago <laughs> or know. whatever. And, and I gave them that answer with a with a twinkle in my eye. So my mother's going to be 98 in a couple of days. And uh, genes are very important. But I do work at it. I work out and I uh, enjoy eating sometimes too much. But um, I think just playing the game of golf is really good for health because you walk probably 10 miles a day and, and walking is very good for you. Besides all of that, you know, you need to laugh, you need to be happy. And you know, the spiritual part is very important, I think, and and uh, have great people around me. All all that is, is vital to, I believe, uh, to feel good about yourself and, and to be mentally and physically healthy.
1: Bernard, you, you must have been one of the the earlier proponents of physical activity or physical training to to look after yourself on tour. I mean, can you remember sort of the early days of of your physical training on tour and and did you feel like an outlier like you were doing something that none of the other golfers perhaps were doing at the time perhaps until a, a Tiger Woods came along and and really thrust it more into the into the media?
3: You know there's yeah, it's, it's a good observation but first of all when I was a kid I loved sports. It was I loved outdoors. I I tried everything and anything. I enjoyed running and throwing and jumping and kicking and whatever it was, you know, it was, it was me. I had a God given talent. I was fast. I was, uh, had a great hand-eye coordination. I was pretty much good in most sports. I picked up and, and loved it. And then later I met Gary Player when I was about 17. And I think he was really the first one in golf that that brought exercise to the table and said, it's important. It's not just swinging a club and then having a beer afterwards. There's more to it. And look at him now. I was actually paired with Gary uh, a few days ago. We played the Pro-Am, the Rolex Pro-Am together at Sunningdale before the, champ- the Senior Open Championship. And what a thrill it was for me, because he became my golfing idol. Gary is 85 years old now. And I look at him and he still makes a wonderful turn. He can still play the game at eighty five he is the way he walks, the way he talks he's he's really with it. you know he's very upright, not bent over uh, and that's when it pays off. I think the the all the workout and the fitness, yeah, it pays off in your twenties, thirties, and forties as well, but it really pays more off when you get into your sixties, seventies and eighties. When other people just hurt here and hurt there and they have bad posture and they shrink and they crumble and and others who take care of their bodies uh, just enjoy life in a much better way. But, I, I learned a lot from Gary Player. let's put it that way.
2: Well, you know the only thing Gary players hit fat in his life is Dale Hayes. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know I used to I used to uh, when Bernard
0: used to come into the German. I, I would be I've done my two hours so I used to leave and, and then Bernard would go to the restaurant of course I didn't like to eat so I would go back to my hotel but um, Bernard I just want to finish off by saying it. for me it's been a privilege knowing you for, for all this time you're a, you're a wonderful human being you really are and and you should be so proud of your success in golf but more than that your your success in life and, and uh, I think I don't think I've ever heard anybody, say a negative word about you. And that's something you should be very proud of. I really appreciate that. That means
3: a great deal. Thank you, and and God bless you all. enjoy talking to you. There it is. A win for
0: the ages. The long and short of it. Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and Dale Hayes. Thanks for listening. We'd ask our friends, except we don't have any. So please like and rate this podcast. Until next time.